morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Daniel 6 is the final chapter of the famous narrative portion of the book. And once you get past chapter 6, there are no more inspiring or exciting stories of protesting the king's food, refusing to bow down before an idol, being thrown into a fiery furnace, reading mysterious messages written on walls, or surviving a night in a lion's den. Instead, we find ourselves trying to navigate passages like Daniel 7, which, if not for Jesus' use of the title Son of Man in the New Testament, would likely leave us totally confused. And if you thought Daniel 7 was strange last week, chapters 8 through 12 can really throw you for a loop. Now, we will get to the truly fascinating and strange parts of the book next week. While many churches and many preachers would just as soon skip over the second half of Daniel, there's value in those inspired pages of scripture as well. But before we take those passages on, I'd like to focus our attention on an absolute gem embedded right in the middle of it all. Surrounded by all of those perplexing, frightening, and hotly debated words of prophecy you find a wonderfully practical, a wonderfully educational bit of scripture. We're talking about Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. So what does this passage teach us about Daniel? What does it teach us about prayer? And perhaps most importantly, what does it teach us about God? Open up to Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can be here in this place, that we can gather safely, that we can gather securely, and that we can offer you worship. Our worship pales in comparison to who you are and what you've done for us. Even our most eloquent, thoughtful, impressive theological words, and even our most heartfelt devotion, it all falls short of even beginning to capture your glory, your majesty, and your power. Nevertheless, I pray that you would accept this worship that we offer you. Thank you for your patience and your grace to us. Thank you that you are our loving Father. And even though our words and our efforts fall short of truly doing you justice, you accept them. You welcome them. And for that, we're grateful. And thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who justifies us by his body and his blood. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will return in power and glory. And thank you that you've given us your spirit until that day comes to sustain us and encourage us and equip us and preserve us until we see your face. I pray that you'd help us endure in the faith until we see you. Lord, again, thank you for your word that we get to read. I pray that you would teach us what we need to learn this morning through your inspired word. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. 
starting in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that's another term for Babylonians, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So let's begin by getting our historical and contextual bearings. As Zach mentioned last week, the second half of Daniel isn't all composed in chronological order. That doesn't mean it's not true. It simply means that the genre of the writing has changed and the author presents his words in a different style in order to accomplish his purposes. So as we begin chapter 9, we find ourselves going back in time. Daniel prays the prayer that we're about to read around 539 B.C. Not long after King Belshazzar and Babylon have fallen in the early days of King Darius of Persia. In other words, we are in the blank space of your Bibles between chapter 5 and chapter 6. That puts Daniel at about 80 years old in chapter 9, with some 65 of those years spent in exile away from his home in Jerusalem. And what does a guy like Daniel do with all his free time? Well, he does the same thing that you all do with your free time. He reads his Bible. He's reading the words of the prophet Jeremiah one of his Israelite contemporaries. But more specifically, he's reading passages like Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 8. We read there. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon Seventy years. Another passage Daniel may have read is Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So both of those passages address Israel's exile. Both specifically mention Babylon. But most significantly, both give a timeline. Seventy years. Now that may sound like a long time to a lot of us. And in some ways it is. But that promise is that God's people would not suffer forever. And based on my Bible college math... If Daniel's exile occurred in 605 B.C., 
And he's writing in 539 B.C. That puts the end of their exile just a few short years away. So what will Daniel do in light of this astounding revelation? Will he start packing his bags to head home? Will he start browsing listings in Jerusalem on Zillow? Will he mail it in as he serves King Darius in his final days as a lame duck servant? Will he share the good news with his fellow Israelites? Well, before he does any of that, Daniel prays. And at first glance, his prayer might not be what you would expect. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day... We have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. 
Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. As we asked earlier, what does this passage teach us about Daniel? Well, the overwhelming takeaway from Daniel's prayer is his posture of humility. Daniel approaches God humbly. You might think that he would come in a state of triumph and elation, given the good news that he just read. But instead, Daniel comes in a state of grief. Why? Because in Daniel's mind, Israel's sin is just that great. In verse 5, Daniel uses five different phrases to express just how thorough their disobedience to God had been. Sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turn aside. Now surely Daniel is relieved and grateful that the exile will soon be over, that they'll get to go home. But before he does any celebrating, Daniel humbly reflects on the sin that got them there. Another testament to Daniel's humility is the way he counts himself among the sinners in this prayer. We have sinned. We have not listened. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. All Israel has transgressed your law. We might be tempted to argue that if there's a single person who doesn't need to repent, it's Daniel, right? This man has been a shining example of faith, obedience, and worship throughout this entire book, often at great personal risk. But Daniel's not concerned about who did or didn't do what. Who does or who doesn't deserve blame. He humbly counts himself among the sinners unworthy of God's grace. And the final example of Daniel's humility might be his acceptance of God's judgment for all these years. Now don't get me wrong. There are plenty of places in the Bible where God's people complain to God about the suffering that they're enduring. Close your eyes and put your finger on a psalm, and there's a good chance that you'll find a complaint there. And God can handle our complaints. To some degree, he even invites us to complain to him. But while that's true, we see none of it here. Daniel does not question. He doesn't second guess. He doesn't criticize the way God has treated them these past 65 or so years. He doesn't express frustration over all the hardships he endured or the more fulfilling life he could have lived back home in Jerusalem. Daniel humbly accepts God's judgment as just. 
Now, we also asked earlier, what does this passage teach us about prayer? And what may be the most practical takeaway of the morning, Daniel 9 can serve as an example of the tried and true acts method of prayer. A-C-T-S, acts. If you haven't heard of it before, the A in acts stands for adoration. The earliest words of Daniel's prayer are words of worship. O Lord, the great and awesome God. One theologian writes that worship may be the biggest theme throughout the book of Daniel. He says it is the issue which is addressed on virtually every page. Before we do much else in our prayers, it's fitting to adore God, to offer words of worship to God. The C in Acts stands for confession, and we see quite a bit of it in this prayer. Sadly, confession of sin, both individually and corporately, is a lost art for many Christians, especially American evangelicals like us. But confessing our sins to God and to our fellow believers is a thoroughly biblical practice. We see King David do it in Psalm 51. And in Psalm 32, he talks about the weight that was lifted from his shoulders when he confessed his sin. Confession can be freeing for us. In the New Testament, James instructs us to confess our sins to one another. Yes, our sins are forgiven through the body and blood of Christ. There is no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean that we don't confess them before the Lord and before other people. The T in Acts stands for thanks. And while this may be the one that you see least in Daniel chapter 9, it's not totally absent. In verse 15, Daniel recounts God's deliverance of his people from Egypt generations earlier. And sometimes not forgetting what God has done for you in the past may be the simplest way of giving him thanks in the present. And finally, the S in Acts stands for supplication, a more formal word for requests. We see Daniel's request in verses 16 through 19. That God would fulfill the commitments he made in those words to Jeremiah. That God really would bring the exile to an end and take them home. We too can make our own requests that God fulfill his promises as we pray. So again, this passage teaches us about Daniel's humility. It gives us a healthy example to model our own prayers after. But finally, and maybe most importantly, this passage teaches us about God himself. One of the most important biblical passages about who God is comes in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. There God says of himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children 
and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. A good way to sum up that passage might be that God is both righteous and merciful. He's righteous in the sense that Israel's sin could not go unpunished. But he's merciful in the sense that Israel's sin would not be the end of them. Of course, we have a hard time seeing how these two attributes can coexist. Because we can't wrap our minds around how someone can be both perfectly righteous and perfectly merciful. We assume that you have to choose between the two. But thankfully, God is not like us. He can be both perfectly righteous and perfectly merciful in ways that we can't even fathom. And if you want biblical evidence of that, the cross is an excellent place to look. We also learn in this prayer that God is patient. A more traditional word might be long-suffering. God waited a long time to send his people to exile. He gave them repeated and explicit warnings. He endured a great deal of neglect before he judged them through Babylon. And in some ways, God is doing the same thing as we speak. The delay of Christ's return as king and judge is not because God fell asleep at the wheel. Rather, as the apostle Peter tells us, It is his way of letting more people reach repentance before it's too late. Verse 4 of Daniel 9 contains what may be the most common Old Testament word that describes God's patience. It's translated there as covenant and steadfast love. It's related to God's attribute that we all love to talk about so much in churches, and rightfully so. His grace. And we learn from this passage that God is sovereign. The past 65 years or so that Daniel endured were not a mistake. And the coming deliverance wouldn't be a happy coincidence. Rather, God has been in charge of it all. We read Jeremiah 29 verse 10 earlier, so I would be cruel to not mention Jeremiah 29 verse 11. It's the promise that God would powerfully, generously, and sovereignly deliver his people to a place and a time of hope. That even in the midst of great darkness, they had a future. That verse is not a catch-all guarantee that things will always work out for us in this life the way we hope they will. It's actually something better. It's an example of God's sovereign commitment to love his people. People like you and people like me. So in the midst of several challenging, controversial, and often neglected chapters at the end of Daniel, we find this passage that teaches us quite a bit. We learn about Daniel's humility in prayer. We see a wonderful model for prayer. And we're given helpful reminders about who the God we pray to really is. But what else might this teach us? Let's start with this question. 
What drives us to pray? In order to answer that question well, it's worth remembering. What drove Daniel to pray? Daniel prayed after he understood God's promise to end Israel's exile away from Jerusalem through the words of Jeremiah. But what drives us to pray? It's understanding God's promise to end humanity's exile away from his presence through the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. It's because of who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, and without sin. It's because of what he has done, his righteous life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. It's because of those things that people like us can pray. It's thanks to Jesus that sinners like us have the right to humbly enter God's presence. To offer him our adoration, confess our sins, give him thanks, and even issue supplications or requests. It's through Christ that we come to know God for who he really, truly, and fully is. Righteous and merciful, patient and gracious, powerful and sovereign. And we too are looking forward to the end of an exile. One caused by the calamity of our sin that led to us being cast away from God's presence. And while none of us knows when it will happen, whether it's a few years from now, 70 years from now, or more, one day Christ will return and we will be back where we belong with God Himself. And it won't be because of our righteousness but because of his, because of his great mercy. Theologian John Calvin says that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. The hope in the future that we have as we pray is that one day deliverance is coming. In some ways, our deliverance has already come through Christ. Daniel's exile our exile won't last forever. And we know that as sure as we know about the cross and as sure as we know about the empty tomb. But as we'll see next week, our deliverance won't always be a straight line. There will be ups and downs, sorrows and sufferings, opposition and persecution. But even then, the core truth remains the same. God's people won't suffer forever. And in the meantime, as we wait for our day of deliverance to come, we can get a taste of God's eternal presence by exercising our blood-bought privilege to approach him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Again, thank you for this time that we have together. The opportunity to worship you here, to pray to you here, 
to listen to your word here. But Lord, also thank you that we can do those things anywhere and everywhere. That we can pray to you at all times. That you invite us to come into your presence in prayer. And even though we look forward to Christ's return, when we really, truly, fully experience your presence and all its glory, thank you that we have the privilege and the right and the honor and the joy of experiencing your presence in a real way now through prayer. That we can call upon your name, that we can know that you hear us. Even though in so many ways we are small and insignificant and weak and flawed and often feel like we're just a drop in the bucket. We have the right to address you in prayer, the God of the universe. And that is an incredibly humbling thought. So I pray that we would take full use of that privilege, that we would adore you, confess our sins to you, thank you, make requests of you on a regular basis. That prayer wouldn't just be something we do when we're here. It wouldn't just be something we do before we eat. It wouldn't just be something that we do when somebody else tells us to or when somebody else leads the prayer, but that you would grow us in our discipline to pray, grow us in our desire to pray. Lord, again, we know our suffering won't last forever, that one day Christ will come, that you will return in power and glory and all of the sin and the death and the evil and the injustice that we grieve in this world will be no more. I pray that you'd preserve us until that day comes. And one way you do that is through prayer. And so, Lord, help us turn to you for help. Help us vocalize our love for you and vocalize our need for you in prayer. Again, thank you that we have this awesome privilege of speaking to you the way we get to speak to you as our Father and as our Lord. That privilege is purchased for us by Christ himself. And I pray that we would make full use of that gift. We love you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.